Thank you for that special music. And uh, glad to see so many coming back tonight. And uh, excited about what the Lord has in store for us over the next few weeks as we really focus uh, our hearts and our minds on personal evangelism and what the Lord has called us to do in winning the lost. His strategy for winning the world is us. And I think we're going to see that tonight. And that's exciting. That's also a, a, a very big responsibility to make sure we're doing what God's called us to do. And so I'm excited about what the Lord's going to show us uh, even tonight. And so uh, let's go to the Lord and pray together. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the opportunities that you give us, Lord, in worship, Lord, to just lift up our hearts and our voices to you. Thank you for the opportunities that you give us to give and, and, and to serve. And Lord, even as we talk about tonight, thank you for the opportunity you give us to be a witness and to be salt and to be light in the world where you've placed us in the, in the relationships and the sphere of influence that you've given us. And so, Lord, tonight I pray that you might speak to us in a, in a very special and very clear way. Uh, in that area of personal evangelism. And uh, Lord, I know I'm a very weak vessel. So Lord, tonight I pray that you might hide me behind the cross, that only you'd be seen and only you'd be heard. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When you think about the title, when you think about the label that is, is put on folks, and when they use that word Christian, what do you think about? When someone says that's a Christian there, or, or ask you, are you a Christian? What comes to your mind? And that's a pretty big question. And so um, maybe the better thing for us to do would be to kind of take a step back and think about some other labels, some other uh, categories and titles that we, we put on folks and, and what we think when, when people say that. For instance, what do you all think about when I say a Bernie Sanders supporter? What comes to mind? Or maybe when I say a Trump supporter, what comes to mind? Different things, right? How about when I say a Kentucky fan? Or a Louisville fan? What comes to mind when I say a Louisville fan? Well, I think we all know. We're not going to talk about it. What comes to mind when you think about somebody who's a CrossFit fanatic and they've always got the shorts on and the tank top and they're ready to go? Oh, wait, that's what I think of. Okay. What comes to mind when you think of a millennial? Many of us, what do you think about? What do you think about on all of those different titles? The odds are that you have certain mental associations with each of those, as well as thousands of others, of titles, of, of descriptions, and what they bring to your mind. Now, what comes to mind when you hear that word Christian? When you say, I am a Christian, or when somebody asks you if, if you're a Christian, what comes to your mind? Odds are you associate that word with certain characteristics as well, certain things that you think about. But the broader culture also forms an impression of what a Christian is or whether or not they are one or want to be one and what it means if you say that you are one. And so we have to understand that that title brings with it some baggage at times even. But the first followers of Jesus didn't call themselves Christian. It was a derogatory term, actually, that was used by people who were outside the faith. We're told there in Acts chapter 11, verse 26, that uh, the first Christians were known actually as disciples. And that title of Christian was actually a derogatory term. People were saying, oh, well, you're just trying to be a bunch of little Jesuses. 
it was a derogatory thing that they were saying. But together, when they were with one another, they, they referred to one another as, as disciples of Jesus Christ. And that word Christian is used three times in the whole Bible. Whereas the word disciple is used some 281 times. And so disciple is a far more accurate and compelling description of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Now I'm not saying you can never call yourself a Christian ever again. I just want you to understand for what we're going to be talking about tonight. The disciple is who we are called to be. A disciple of Jesus. A, a person who sits at his feet. That is who we are to be. To, we want to become more and more like him every single day. To follow him. To be like him. To think like him. To love like him. To act like him. And as we see that concept of a disciple ex exposes the fact that many who claim to be a Christian men are certainly not what a disciple would be described as. Because those are not folks who in their lives right now are showing any characteristics of an individual who really wants to think like Jesus, or really wants to love like Jesus, or really wants to act like Jesus. We do our own thing and call ourselves Christians, but if we truly call ourselves disciples, it changes things. And so we come to those first disciples that Jesus called. And we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22 tonight. So if you will, please turn with me there to Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. A very familiar passage of scripture for most of us, I believe. As it is Jesus calling those first fishermen out of their boats and away from their father to him. And so if you're there in Matthew chapter 4, please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. Verses 18 through 22. It says, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. And going on from thence, he saw other two brethren, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, in a ship with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And they immediately left their ships and their father and followed him. You may be seated. Now in that passage of scripture, I think it's important that we have a little bit of a historical context. In that time period, all Hebrew boys went to Torah school starting at age five. Now can you imagine sending your five-year-old little boy or little grandson to learn the Old Testament and being, them being expected to memorize it today. But that's what those little boys were expected to do. First five books of the Old Testament, the, the books of the law, the books of Moses. And they were to memorize those books. They were to know, know them backward and forward. They were to know every aspect of them and what they meant and what they meant to, to them as a people. And so at age five, that process of educating their young boys began. All little boys got to go at five. All little boys were trained in the Torah at age five. Now, then by age ten, young boys knew the Torah, first five books of the Old Testament, and then the best of those students went on to study the remainder of the Old Testament. The rest did, would return home to work with their families, to work with their fathers most of the time in the family business, not to go any further in their education than those first five books. But at age 17 then, after that first calling away, then at age 17, if you wanted to go on and to make a career out of religious studies, then your next step was to find a rabbi 
someone that you saw as a great teacher, a rabbi that you admired greatly, and to apply to become one of his disciples, or in the Greek, a Talmudim. A Talmudim is, is a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, one who follows, uh, or, or is, it was a, a disciple of any rabbi at that time, one who followed them and wanted to learn from them so they could become like them. And so when you found one, when you found a rabbi who you respected and wanted to follow, you would go and you would sit at that rabbi's feet. And that was your request to learn from that, from that rabbi, to follow that rabbi. And the rabbi would then examine you with questions and put you through a series of tests to see if you were worthy to be his Talmudim, to be his disciple. And the rabbis would choose the smartest. They would choose the most talented boys to be their disciples. You see, back in that day, there wasn't an NBA, there wasn't an NFL, there wasn't Major League Baseball. Little boys didn't dream of being professional athletes, and there wasn't a whole lot of money in anything else. And so the greatest thing that you could become was to become a religious leader. That was where the power structure was. That's where you could be known. That's where people would, would respect you. To be a religious leader, that was the top of the food chain. And so every boy would want that. And so you wanted to seek out a rabbi who you thought could teach you everything you could know. And that rabbi thus had the opportunity to choose from the cream of the crop. Because everybody wanted to be chosen. Everybody wanted to be a part of that religious hierarchy. And so that's what took place here. And so the rabbis could be picky. They could be picky in who they chose to be their disciples. They were choosing someone with whom, though, they believed would become just like them. And so you wanted to be picky. If you recognize that, that this person that you're choosing is going to, you're going to be reproducing yourself through them. You want them to be the best of the best. You want them to be the smartest. The, you want them, them to be the hardest worker. And so that's what they would do. They would choose the smartest, the most equipped, the, the ones with the greatest amount of skills. Not just those who, uh, who they thought they could get along with, but those who they could, thought they could literally make a, another one of themselves out of that young man. And so for several years, these young men, these Talmudim, would follow their rabbis, imitating them in every way. The goal was to be just like your rabbi. And so we've talked about before that the idea was that you would be covered in the dust of your rabbi. That was the greatest compliment that a Talmudim could receive was that they would say, well, you are just covered in the dust of your rabbi, meaning you were following so closely that whatever they kicked up on the path was getting on you. It was splattering up on you because that's how closely you were following your rabbi. Every act, every action, every thought, it was all the same that you acted, that you you knew what your rabbi knew, that you acted like your rabbi, that you loved like your rabbi. That's the, that's the way that you wanted to be seen. The best of the best chose. But what we see here is that Jesus doesn't choose the best. He chooses the willing. And that's a good thing. As he was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew, they were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus, this, at this time, they didn't know exactly who Jesus was, but this new, amazing rabbi who taught unlike any other, 
He's here on the edge of the sea. And as he walks up, he chooses Peter and Andrew, who are fishermen. He chooses them to be his Talmudim, to be his disciples, these fishermen. Now, the fact that they were fishermen shows us what? When we think about what that means, it means at the age of 10, most likely. At the age of 10, they had been cut from the squad. They didn't make the team. And so they had to go and do something else. A lot of us have experienced that with our kids or our grandkids. And we know how that hurts when they try out for that first team where there's actually cuts and they don't make it. You ever been a parent and had to talk to your kid about that? Well, that's part of life. Well, age of 10, these, these boys had been cut and they didn't make that next level. And so they had gone back and they had gone back to the family business. And for them, that was fishing. And so it means that they were not the smartest, they weren't the cream of the crop, they weren't the most skilled. These are guys who had gone back to being fishermen, laborers. They were part of what we would not refer to today as the B team. They weren't the best of the best. Now I just want you to let that sink in a minute though. Jesus chose them. Jesus chose them. No one else had. Every other rabbi had, 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 had passed them by. In fact, they hadn't even really made it to that series of cuts. They didn't even make it into the 10 to 17 category. And so here we see Jesus comes by, and these guys who have probably for some time now been fishing with their father, he calls them to be his disciples. When Jesus chose his squad to build his movement, when he chose his team to win the world, he chose the B team. Now, does that make any sense? To choose the B team? It might even be referred to as the C team with these guys. But that's who he chose. So, of course, they followed him. What an honor. The most amazing, the, 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 the grandest rabbi who come around in their entire lifetimes. Anyone that could, could, could know anything knew that Jesus was something special. And he had chosen them to be his Talmudim, to be his disciples. So, of course, they followed. This rabbi had chosen them, guys without much potential or personal power, to follow him and to become like him, to know him like he knew God. To know what he knew, to do what he did, to be filled with his power. I like what John MacArthur says. He said, God skipped all the wise of the day. The great scholars were in Egypt. The great library was in Alexandria. The great philosophers were in Athens. The powerful were in Rome. He passed over Herodias the historian and Socrates the great thinker and Julius Caesar. He chose men so ordinary that it was comical. No rabbis, no teachers. No religious experts. And that's right. That's exactly what Jesus did. He chose those that nobody else wanted. And he said, hey, you come and you follow me. And I'm going to make you fishers of men just like me. Wow. People with that kind of experience aren't usually chosen to be part of a team like Jesus was doing. But Jesus chose the B team because his work in this world would not come from their abilities for him, but, that, but from what he would do through them. 
people with lots of talent and ability would only get in the way because they would never learn to lean on his power. They would always lean on their own intellect. They would only always lean on their own skills and their own talents. But Jesus said, I'm going to take these who don't have all that, and then they're going to have to rely on the power that I will show them, what only the Holy Spirit himself can do through them. And we see that. We see that in their lives. They are very weak. But boy, when that Holy Spirit shows up, it changes them completely. You see, Jesus taught that his power in the weakest vessel was infinitely greater than the greatest talent without him. God wants to use you in your family and at your workplace. And so stop making excuses that you're not able. He's glad that you're not able. He knows you're not able. That's why he chose you. He wants to do something through you that can only be accredited to him. He doesn't need your ability. He only requires your availability. And so as we often say, he doesn't call the equipped, but he will always equip the called. And so have you made yourself available? That's the question. Not do you know everything you need to know. Not are you the most talented one. Not even are you the most likely one to be chosen. But have you made yourself available? That's all Jesus needs. An available vessel. But secondly, we see here that he chose us, not we him. He said, follow me. They didn't go after him. He said, follow me. Now, as I explained, the normal way that this all went down is that if you were among the best of your class, then you would go and you applied to a rabbi. And if he liked what he saw, he chose you back. But you had to go first. You had to seek him out. And so now this selection gave them great confidence. Because if they were struggling, they would say, hey, but my rabbi believed in me, and I went to him, and he chose me and allowed me to follow him. But Jesus started the process back even further than that, because they didn't even come to sit at his feet. He came seeking them when they weren't even looking for him. They were in a boat fishing for fish. They didn't think that they were ever going to be a part of following a rabbi. They never thought of themselves as Talmudim. They didn't think that they had what it took to be that. But Jesus comes to them and says, you follow me. He came seeking after them. And I know that this evening some of you are struggling mightily in a, in a variety of different areas. Some of you are struggling in your marriage and you're saying to yourself, you know what, I, I recognize very clearly that if Jesus was married to my spouse, he'd be doing a great job but me not so much. I know that if Jesus was at my job, he'd be knocking it out of the park, but me not so much. I know that if Jesus was, was raising my kids, he'd be doing a great job, but me not so much. But here's the thing. Jesus has called you to those tasks, and he is working in and through you and giving you his power. And so you can do that which you think you can't. And so believe me, if you are Jesus' disciple, then he chose you, and he chose you for a purpose. John 15, 16 says, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you, that you should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whosoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he shall give it to you. 
But, se- but thirdly, I want you to see that our primary calling is to be with him. Our primary calling is to be with him. Again, we go back to what he says there. Follow me. He didn't tell them where he was going or what the assignment that he had for them would be. His primary call is not to do something. It is to become like him. And to become like him, you have to know him. And to know him, you have to know his word. And here at Brinesburg, you have so many opportunities to do that. On a weekly basis, you have so many opportunities to grow in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. On Sundays, Sunday morning, Sunday night, you have the opportunity to be a part of corporate worship. Are you doing that? You're here on a Sunday night, so good job. Some people aren't. I don't know if you looked around. Not everybody's here. But we have those opportunities. Brinesburg Discipleship University on Wednesday night gives you an opportunity to all kinds of, of classes for you to be able to take those classes and, and dig deeper in small group studies and in different books that you might not look at in that in-depth kind of way any other time. On Sunday mornings at 10 a.m., we have small group Sunday school classes. Again, small groups. You dive deeper into the Word. You're there to discuss it together. You're there to hold one another accountable. We have ICAR uh, archive messages on, on Facebook, the service that's going out right now. Uh, it'll be available to you from here on out. And so you can go back and you can see maybe what you missed. For those of you who aren't here, you can go back and look at it. And so that you have all those opportunities. And if you're really serious about being his disciple, his Talmudim, then you're going to take those, those advantage of those opportunities to be more like him, to learn more about him. You're going to want to do those things. Get his word inside of you until it dominates all of your thinking and all of your behaviors, until, until it just pours out of you. That's the point here. Until you think it and talk it and quote it, that's what it's all about. It's to be so filled with Jesus that there's just no more room and it just starts to spill out. That's the point. That's the point, for it to spill out on others and and affect their lives in the same way it affects you. But then fourthly, he says, to follow him, we have to leave all. To follow him, we have to leave all. I want you to know something. He says, immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. They left their boat and they left their father and they followed him. Why identify those two things? Why those two? Well, because these are usually the two most significant things in any of our lives. Our boat, our career, the way that we make a living, the way that we pay the bills. It's very important to us. And then the father, the most significant relationship in our life. Maybe it's your spouse, maybe it's one of your kids, whoever it may be. But that person that is most on this earth important to you. Your boat, your father, your career, and your most significant relationship. Those are the two things he points out here. You see, because to follow Jesus, he has to take precedence over both. He has to be preeminent, high and above all else. Even the most important relationship in your life, even even the career that God has called you to. It has to all be secondary to Jesus if we were to be his Talmudim, if we were to be his disciples. So most of us won't literally have to lose father and mother for Jesus, but some will. Some of us will have to walk away from relationships that are unhealthy. Some of us will have to get ourselves in a place where, you know, we're able to do what God's called us to do. And, and of course, when I'm uh, sharing these kinds of things with our, our teenagers or with our college students, many times that's an unhealthy dating relationship. 
Um, but for us, sometimes it may be a friendship that's, that's dragging us down. Somebody who has no interest in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can try to share the gospel with them. But for them to be the, the dominating relationship in our life just isn't healthy. And so sometimes we will have to give up those relationships. But some might be other things. For some, God may tell you to change careers. Maybe God is going to tell you to transfer so that you can be a part of what God's doing in, in another place. Um, you know, maybe God's going to call you to do that. Maybe he's calling you to, to leave and to go overseas because he's called you to be on mission for him in a, in a career type of way. Um, and for some of us, he's going to tell us to do those things. He's going to tell us to make those, those, those huge steps of, of faith just like he did here. But for many of us, it's probably not going to be that dramatic. It's going to be moment after moment deciding who holds sway over our lives. Who's going to be in charge? What's going to be most important to us? And so are we going to allow ourselves to stay in a career that always takes us away from church, that always steals away opportunities for us to be a part of missions and ministry? Are, are we going to stay in a place that we know uh, really is just toxic to our spiritual life? Or are we going to do what God's called us to do? Are we going to take a pay cut even if it means that we can be in a place that's healthier for us or that God's just called us to be in for his plans and for his purposes? How much sway does God have on those decisions that we make? That's the question. But then fifthly, we see that he commands us to spiritually reproduce. He commands us to spiritually reproduce. Now, what does that mean? He says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. I will make you fish for people. Following Jesus means that you subject yourself to his lordship. Everything in your life, everything that's important to you, is placed under his lordship. You see, because before we come to Christ, we see ourselves as Lord. We see, our, see ourselves as the boss of every aspect of our lives. And so we don't like for people to tell us what to do. If I was to take a poll in here, I would say 90% or higher of us really have issue when people try to tell us what to do. Because we really like to be the boss of ourselves. We really like to be Lord of our own lives. But for this to take place, for us to be the Talmudim that he's called us to be, for us to be the disciple he's called us to be, every aspect of our life has to be under his lordship. So you forsake all that he has forbidden and pursue all that he has prescribed. Just like he was a fisher of men, his followers would become fishers of men. And this is an essential part of being a disciple of Jesus. It's not something that only a few will do. It's not just something that you hire the preacher to do. Well, I hope we hire a good preacher who can reach people for Jesus. Well, I hope our, our, our Sunday school teachers, I hope our, our, our deacons are doing their job and women people to Jesus. We think it's something we hire out, like you hire out your plumbing or your electrical work at home. No. It's not just something we hire out to be done by a select few. Being a disciple of Jesus means that we produce fruit. It's something that each of us does. There's no such thing. Listen to me. There is no such thing in the New Testament as a non-reproducing Christian. They don't exist. If you don't produce fruit, you are not a disciple. Pure and simple. And that's hard for a lot of us to hear because we have never produced fruit. And that's something that should be troubling to you. How do you prove that you're a disciple? 
How does Jesus say you prove yourself to be a disciple? You prove yourself to be a disciple because you are bearing fruit. Fruit trees prove to be fruit trees because they do what? They bear fruit. And they don't just bear one apple. They produce much. They produce multiple apples or multiple peaches or, or, or whatever else that it might be producing. They produce multiple because that's what they are. That's who they are. That's what they were created to do. And we have been created to be reproducing disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you are not bearing fruit, then the New Testament, the New Testament tells us, you have reasons to question whether or not you're truly a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ at all. Whether you truly belong to him if you are not producing any fruit for him. John 15, 8 says, Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. You prove yourself to be His when, he do, when we do what He has called us to do, which is producing more disciples for Him. So Jesus tells His disciples how to bear fruit in His famous great commission to them. Not the great suggestion, the great commission. And by it being a commission, it is coming from a commanding officer. Think about what happens if a commanding officer hands down marching orders to the foot soldier. And he says, I don't think I want to do that. I don't think that's something that, you know, is really in line with what I want to do in my life right now. What happens to that soldier? They're disciplined. They're disciplined. Because the commanding officer has given a direct order and that is what the great commission is matthew chapter 28 verses 19 to 19 through 20 say go ye therefore and teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and the holy ghost teaching them to observe all things whatsoever i've commanded you and lo i'm with you always even unto the end of the world amen in greek the words go baptize and teach they are all uh, participles that derive their force from the one controlling verb, make disciples. It all comes from there. And so that means that everything we do grows out of that calling to make disciples. The reason that we do everything else, the reason that we're going out on missions, the reason that we're baptizing people into the church, the reason that we're teaching them all these things is because we have been called to make disciples. Well, how do you make disciples? You have to find individuals who could become disciples. You have to win them to Christ and see them baptized. You have to then teach them everything that it means to follow Jesus. That's how you make a disciple. We are called to go and make disciples. And so Jesus summarizes his ministry in Luke chapter 19 by saying this, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. As Brinesford Baptist Church, we do a lot of different ministries in a lot of different places, both here in Marshall County and throughout the state of Kentucky and throughout North America and, and truly throughout the rest of the world. We have a lot of different ministries, but the thing that all of those better have in common is the fact that we are doing them to seek and to save, to find those who do not yet know Jesus and to win them to Christ, to do whatever it takes to see them come to know Jesus. And so we have 
food ministry. We have clothing ministry. We have ministries for children. We have ministries for youth. We have ministries for senior adults. We have ministries for college-age students. We have ministries for young adults. We have ministries that go out on mission. We have ministries that do vacation Bible school. We do all those things, though, because we are designed that we might seek out those who are lost and see them saved by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. And so if we are his disciples, that's how we'll summarize our lives. That our lives are all about going and making disciples. Seeking out those who do not know Jesus and winning them to Christ. In his book, The Master Plan of Evangelism, Robert Coleman said this. When will the church learn this lesson? Preaching to the masses, although necessary will never suffice in the work of preparing leaders for evangelism. Nor can occasional prayer meetings and training classes for Christian workers do this job. No. Individual women and men are God's method. God's plan for discipleship is not something, but someone. Hear that, Brownsville. God's plan for discipleship is not something it's not for me to go to another conference and try to bring it back to you it's not for you to go to another class and 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 try to learn another technique it's not to to just simply sit in the church and like we are tonight and talking about it the plan for discipleship is that we go and do it that you as an individual member of brian's baptist church you go and you be a disciple maker that's the plan It doesn't work any other way. If it never makes it out of the four walls of this building, then the plan breaks down. It's a perfect plan if we do what God's called us to do. If we go and if we make disciples. And so, Brinesburg, you are God's method. You have made his team, and he wants to use you. We want to see you become this one that God will use this year in 2020. That's why this is the year of one. We want you to commit to it. We want you to commit to what we've been talking about here. And it can be a little intimidating, I know, the idea of being a disciple maker. But don't let it be intimidating to you. Because all it means is that we, to to make disciples is simply teaching someone to follow Jesus as you follow Jesus. And helping them to recognize that it's all about the Holy Spirit coming in and taking control. And doing what only he can do. And so it's just living life with folks, showing them the mistakes in your life, the the victories in your life, just being real with them. And Jesus has promised to help us do this work of discipling folks and helping them to learn all that he has commanded. And so this evening, last week during the State of the Church Address, we kind of presented, began to launch this idea of the year of one. And I hope that you've been praying about who the one that the Lord has been placing on your heart is. I hope that you've been praying about that. And for some of you, I know it's your child. For some of you, I know it's your spouse. It's a a brother. It's a sister. It's a a best friend. Uh, It's somebody very close to you. I hope that you've prayed about who that individual is. I hope you've identified them. And I want tonight, I want for you to ask God to help you identify that person. to, To see them, to know who they are, and to help you. by by the power of the Holy Spirit, to throughout this year, hopefully before this month is over, but certainly before this year is over, to see them come to know Christ.
because of your witness, because of your desire to pray for them and, and to have conversations with them. I want you to commit yourself that that is going to be the focus of your year, is, is winning your one, being the one who, who is sharing the gospel with them, making sure that you're responsible for that one. Can we each commit to that? Because I want you to think about what happens if we do. I want you to think about what happens if we each and every one here tonight commit to having that one on our heart, and we commit that I'm going to be serious about this. I'm taking it. This is the most important thing in my year is seeing this one come to know Jesus. If each one of us does that, if each one of our small groups has individuals within that small group, and all of us are saying together, I'm going to share the testimony when I share Christ and that, that person accepts him. I'm going to have something to share, and I'm going to bring it back to this small group. I'm going to bring it back to my Wednesday night Bible study. I'm going to bring it back to my my Sunday morning Sunday school class. I'm going to bring it back to the large group. And I'm going to come up and I'm going to tell Brother Brad, I got, I got a testimony today because God, God brought my one to him. Isn't that going to be exciting? Because it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Your son or daughter is going to be saved this year. Your husband, your wife's going to be saved this year. Your friend's going to be saved this year because you made a commitment and said, God, I'm not the best. I'm not the most qualified, Lord, but I am the available one, and I want you to use me. God will use you. God will bless that. And so this evening, are you a disciple? Are you a disciple maker? You can be. This evening, we've got some bookmarks up here. And on those bookmarks, there's a little piece, perforated piece that can tear off. And I want you to write your one's name. And I want you to lay that name on this altar. And we're going to, as a church, we're going to pray for those names. And then on that, uh, uh, on that bookmark, there's some verses. And I want you to go through those verses. And for the next 30 days, we're going to pray together. And at 6 o'clock tonight, our prayer guide went live on our Facebook page. Now, some of you don't have access to that. And so if you don't, just let me know. And I'll make sure and get you a copy printed off. They kind of look like this. I, they are very long. And I just didn't want to print a bunch out if I didn't know how many we needed. Uh, but I certainly can get them printed. But the, it is on the Facebook page, and you can just click on there and find this. But it's going to be a 30-day guide for praying for your one. And each day it's going to just give you a little uh, verse there and a little something to think about to help you in that work. Um, but that's something that you can use. Again, if you need help with that, you can tell me and I can get those printed. But they are on the Facebook page right now. But an opportunity for you to be able to lift that individual up for the next 30 days. But tonight we're going to start right here at the altar. And so during the invitation, I want you to come, and I want you to grab a pen, I want you to grab a bookmark, and I want you to write that name and tear that off and put it here at the altar. And that, write that name down then on the other part of your, of your bookmark so that every day as you're going through your Bible study time to get with, with the Lord, you'll be praying for them every day. But here, that gives us an opportunity as a church family to pray together and to celebrate when that one comes to know Christ. This is the year one. It's not... Ten different things we're going to do this year, it's one thing, but it's the most important thing. It's the thing that God's called us to. So will you be committed? Will you commit yourself to that one? Lord, Heavenly Father, we come to you tonight, and I thank you. I thank you for what you've placed on the heart of our church to win individuals to Christ in 2020. And to do it as personally of a way as possible. Lord, as we talked about last week. So often, the task of winning the law seems so daunting because there's just so many people who are lost. And it becomes almost something so far away that we don't even touch it. 
but when we start to think about the one that we are personally responsible for, then it hits home. Then, then that's where the rubber meets the road. Lord, help us to be the one who wins our spouse, who wins our son, our daughter, our brother, our sister, our mom, our dad to Christ. Help us to be the one who wins that neighbor, that best friend to Christ. Use us. Lord, help us to have broken hearts. The way your heart breaks for the lost, help ours to break as well. Lord, we love you. As these commitments are made tonight, I pray it be the start of something amazing in this year. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.